for our beer of the week this week, I wanted to get something light. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up. I'm probably going to be eating way too much next Thursday. So decided to go with something light, something light on the calories. I went with a White Claw. I know Steve went with a light beer. And uh, I think it's good to uh, kind of shave down the calories going into next week. Yeah, something that our front office didn't do in terms of cutting back and cleaning house in a way. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to uh, feast in the coming weeks. That's probably doubtful, but I am Stephen Patton, your host, joined by my co-host, Jake LaQuire, here on Perfect Takes. We're going to break down, obviously, the loss in Chicago on Thursday night. It seems like forever ago, I mean, between what's happened since Thursday um, leading into today with Ken Dorsey's firing. Um, but is there anything that you particularly took away from the game in a positive note uh, that we can kind of build upon moving forward? Uh, in a positive note? Um, yes, I'll say this. The one play that I can remember that they drew up some play action for the offense for Bryce Young, he hit Michael, I, I believe it's pronounced Strawn. It's like S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. He was a practice squad guy in Indy with Frank Reich. He's on our practice squad here. He was elevated. Anyway, hit him on like a 45-yard uh, little go route there and kind of juiced the offense for a bit. But other than that, nothing really. We didn't really try it again. And there was just no success on either side of the field on Thursday night. Yeah, I mean, it was it was nice to jump out to a 10-3 lead. You feel like with a touchdown lead against uh, two teams with really poor offenses, that like that would be enough. And we only scored a field goal the rest of the way. And like you said, it was a little disheartening to see that we didn't really have any juice outside of that first play action pass down kind of down the sideline, like you're saying. Um, weren't able to get the ball to guys like DJ Chark and Adam Thielen. And it showed. It, it showed um, very heavily. And uh, he, Bryce Young drops back 38 times Thursday night. He's pressured against one of the worst defensive lines. Now, granted, they just added Monte Sweat. Uh, they had Yannick Nagakwe that they signed in August. And they have some good interior defensive linemen. But this isn't a good defensive line. And they pressured Bryce Young on... 20 of those 38 dropbacks, like almost 50% of the time. And we're going up against the Cowboys this week. It's, it's one of those things that like there, there are things that are going wrong with the offensive line, getting wide receivers open. And that's like a top to bottom, like Frank Reich looked lost in the presser earlier this week. And that's exactly how this offense feels. Yeah. Following the Houston game in which we won, that was Thomas Brown's first game calling plays. Of course, there hasn't really been any good stuff. Uh, I mean, obviously, two weeks ago, Bryce had the disaster game where he had three interceptions and I believe just the one touchdown to Chark. And then this game, we're unable to produce a touchdown on offense. Our lone touchdown came from the Emir Smith-Marset putt return, which was good to see. Good to have some juice in the special teams uh, on Thursday. But other but than that... we didn't see him on the offense. Like, right, we didn't see him on the offense. We're Domingo and not Emir Smith-Marset. Like, it's just, oh, man. Well, and, and to practice squad call-ups as well. Um, it's, it just seems mismanaged, like the personnel. We talk about that every week. But, yeah, the main thing for me is the offensive line. Pressured on more than half of the dropbacks is just unacceptable. It doesn't matter what caliber of offensive line you are. You should win at least half your reps, especially against a bad defensive line. But I think that's the main story. We also gave up three sacks to the defensive line. With I believe they had the least sacks going in, least sacks in the league going into yeah. that week. Uh, that they might still have the least amount of sacks. But 
I just the offense I thought was abysmal. I thought on the defensive end, however, that Dante Jackson did a pretty good job shutting down DJ Moore. He didn't really get the revenge game that was talked about kind of in amongst Panthers fans on Twitter and stuff. Deontay Foreman, on the other hand, did get his. I believe he, he had uh, 80 yards and he had their also their lone touchdown there. Um, so they were able to move and churn on the ground. And that was to be expected, you know, with uh, Brian Burns being out short week. And people like DJ Johnson and I believe Amari Barno was our other edge starter. Uh, it seemed pretty telegraphed that we were going to be giving up the run, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, that's like I know we we had differing opinions of YGM coming into this year, but him being out with injury, he was a huge part in that run game. Like you said, you have your all-star defensive end edge rusher Brian Burns. He's out with a concussion. That's going to impact how you can set the edge, stop the run, get after the quarterback. And while the defense did admirably, we we stopped DJ Moore. We kind of held that passing game in check uh, with Tyson Badgett kind of at the helm for the Bears. And that's that's what our defense has been doing the past, it feels like, four or six weeks. Like, the difference is, is we can't do anything offensively. And it, it's sad because it's we had opportunities against the Colts. Uh, we had opportunities on Thursday night against the Bears. And those are two of the worst defenses in the league. Now we have to go and play in front of our home crowd which is mostly going to be made up of Dallas yeah. Cowboys fans. And it's it's going to be abysmal. Like this is this is going to be borderline unwatchable, I believe, on Sunday. And it's we'll, we'll get more into that later. But it's one of those things that you didn't take the opportunities that were present. We could have gone from coming out of that bye, beating Houston. If we beat Indy, we beat Chicago, we'd be three and six right now. We'd be right in the hunt for the NFC South race. And that's just not the case. And like we've been talking about, this just goes back to poor management issues like this is just mismanagement across the board i think uh what sums it up perfectly is on that final drive of the game for our offense bryce converts three fourth downs granted we haven't mm-hmm. been moving the ball a ton but that drive he was doing pretty well uh towards the end there we ended up settling for a 59 yard field goal with eddie pinero who's not known for having a big leg he, he was short by about five yards on it missed it and then in the press conference on monday Somebody, or maybe it was Friday because it was, yeah, it was following the game. It was that Friday morning, the presser. Somebody asked Frank Reich, hey, do you ever think about maybe just, you know, giving Bryce a chance to convert the fourth down to keep the chains moving instead of kicking the field goal? And he said, after going back and watching it, yeah, I kind of regret going for the 59-yard field goal at night in Soldier Field with mm-hmm. Soldier Field notorious for having like swirling winds. Uh, yep. He said, yeah, I, I kind of regret that now uh, going back and looking at it. So it's like I during the game, I'm sure it's hard to make decisions like that on the spot. I'm sure the like numbers probably preferred going for the fuel goal as opposed to a fourth and 10 from the must have been like the 42 or something like that. Yeah. But for your rookie QB who has been struggling throughout the season, but has shown stuff in fourth quarters, especially in the Houston game. And then this game on that last drive, converting multiple fourth downs and stuff like that. I think giving him the opportunity to go out and try and make a play was the better choice there. And just in the moment, I guess Frank Craig didn't think that that was the correct choice. And like we're saying, that's been kind of the, the microcosm, or I guess macrocosm of the entire season now. Regrettable decisions and poor decisions in real time that have had real effects on the outcomes of games. 
Oh, I mean, that's playing scared. And I, I think you can see that in some of the play calling that in like we're, we're afraid of how the offensive line is playing. So we're calling a lot of quick passes, different screens. And it's not like, oh, let's throw extra bodies at the problem and get Bryce out in space. Let him like set his feet and have a platform and and make a read, make a make a throw downfield because it's it, like, why did we bring in DJ Chark? Like at this rate, that like that money would have been better spent on like a guard or a tackle or offensive line depth or or trading for a different wide receiver. It's like the, his skill set we're not utilizing, just like we aren't utilizing Mingo correctly. And there's definitely a lot of things wrong with how Mingo's been playing and how he's been adapting to the NFL level. But it's just some of these things that the play callers aren't helping these players either. And that's just it's it's frustrating. It's it's going to make the rest of this season hard to watch. Um, Bryce Young and CJ Stroud, you hear a lot of comparisons of these and the Panthers community is, I think, kind of torn. A lot of people are like, oh, our, our front office made the wrong decision. And there's several people that go, no, if you look at this team, if you put Stroud on this team, I don't think he's elevating it. Uh, the way he's playing in Houston. And I think that's right to say, like CJ Stroud right now has the longest time to throw according to the next gen stats with over three seconds. And he's not getting pressured. He has a clean pocket for most of these dropbacks. Now he has made a lot of plays when he has been pressured. I don't want to take that away from him, but the way he's asked, been asked to play he can play in structure and take his time stroud is uh, not stroud bryce young is 15th in time to throw at 2.85 seconds he doesn't have guys that can create separation at wide receiver and his offensive line is leaky like it's just it's it's an apple to orange orange comparison and this next offseason we're going to have to add o-line pieces we're going to have to add more wide receiver weapons for Bryce Young, if we want to see him to de develop. Otherwise, it was just a waste of a pick to move up to number one and and pretty much uh, like ruin his rookie rookie year. Yeah, not to diminish what Stroud's done. He's been excellent so far this year. I think uh, specifically the past two weeks where he had the monster game against it was Tampa. I believe he had the nice game-winning drive there. And then even against the Cincinnati Bengals this past week, had a three-turnover game, but still – Got, got his stuff together, and then at the end of the game, delivered the game-winning drive for the field goal to take the win there. So he's been phenomenal this year in his rookie year. But like you're saying, he does have the support staff in place that I think a lot of us wish that Bryce had here. And like you said, it, it seems to be a waste of a year. With uh, It just seems like Bryce is getting more and more discouraged behind a bad offensive line and receivers that not only don't get open but don't have any uh, yak or yards after the catch contribution once they do get the ball. It's just, it's a bad scenario for any rookie QB. And I think CJ Stroud would have the same struggles here if we had chosen him instead of Bryce. It's just, it's not an ideal scenario for a rookie QB to step into. It isn't. And for people that are asking for Frank Reich's like head, like pretty much the be fire, be done with this, I think are a little rash and, and, and jumping the gun a little early because we've seen a lot of great play callers when they do not have a good offensive line struggle. Frank Reich looked great his first couple years in Indianapolis. It's part of the reason why he got the job and gig here in Carolina. Um, but in that final year, his offensive line leaky, he's not able to run some of the stuff that he typically was able to with Matt Ryan at the helm. And we're seeing the same kind of thing this year in Carolina. And it's the same across the board. When you look at Sean McVay, like some of his best years with golf and Stafford, they had a really, really good offensive line and years where McVay has been down and he hasn't looked so good. The offensive line has been bad. And Thomas Brown comes from kind of that mindset and, and, 
methodology and, and way you go about scheming. So if they focus on building an offensive line, I think they have the right nucleus. It just doesn't look good right now. And it's one of those things that you have to go back to the drawing board. You have to reset expectations and, and really do your best at making sure that you're building this roster the right way. Yeah, I, I don't think any of us anticipated the regression that our offensive line would face. They're among the league's best in run blocking last year. And the pass blocking, I think they're middle of the pack, maybe around 10th. But I think losing Corbett and then losing Brady Christensen to start the year kind of damper, like dampened that. But they also okay. drafted a rookie guard. And it's just none of it's really coming together. I think trying to change the scheme from what worked last year is to their detriment where we were a power run game that could set up play action last year. Now in the presser again, Frank Reich says he doesn't want to be a power smash mouth football team, uh, which is kind of concerning because that's what we were last year, which worked, you know, but um, I don't know. It, it's this, it seems like a lost year. And like you said, we have to face Dallas. It's it's in Carolina, but Dallas fans already travel well, and that stadium's already been taken over multiple times this year. So it's going to be a Dallas home game, essentially. So hopefully uh, we can just do something better with our Sundays instead of having to watch that game. Kind of uh, a more around the NFL look here. Last week we went over our kind of our midseason review, some of the predictions we did, stuff like that. Well, this week I want to look at some of the pleasant surprises and negative surprises of this season. Kind of teams we were low on that have done a lot better and the teams we were higher on that have been kind of bad to start this first half of the year. Who's your first good surprise team this year? It's it's the team we were just talking about that has done the right thing in terms of how they've gone about building a team around a rookie quarterback, and that's the Houston Texans. D'Amico Ryans comes in with Bobby Slowick. Uh, they, they bring in veterans like Robert Woods, Dalton Schultz, Noah Brown. They already have Nico Collins in the building. They draft a Tank Dell. The offensive line, despite a lot of injuries, they're they're trading late round picks for backup guards, and uh, they have Laramie Tunsil, who they recently extended, and like it's starting to come together for that team because they they invested a lot. It wasn't a lot of star power, but they made sure that they had guys at the right position. And then on defense, they, they go out, they get Will Anderson, and he's been a baller. Uh, they look like they have some form of a pass rush, which was something that we had a concern about when we went over the AFC South. So just seeing what they've been able to do uh, compared to where they were at last year at 3-14 and 14 and uh, the second overall pick, like this is, this is leaps and bounds improvement, and it's very cool to see. Like D'Amico Ryans uh, being drafted by the Houston Texans, now coming back as the head coach, like this is really special. Yeah, I think uh, they've improved across the board. You talk about the weapons that they added. Tank Dell, Dalton Schultz. Uh, I think they traded for Robert Woods, brought in Noah Brown, who's been excellent when he's been healthy. These are guys that, looking at ESPN's wide receiver open score, all of them are top half in the league, and then all of them are also, I believe, top third in the league in their yak score or yards after the catch. So just phenomenal weapons they have there. Their offensive line, while banged up, has been playing pretty well and they also ended up trading for and adding a lot of guys there in free agency as well to supplement that and then you talk about their defensive line Jonathan Grenard and Will Anderson are both among mm -hmm. top 10 and pass rush win rate for defensive ends or edge rushers and of course they traded uh like a pretty big uh ransom to get Will Anderson but it's been worth it he's a defensive rookie of the year candidate and then of course all of that comes together when they add in their franchise quarterback and CJ Stroud, who's been lights out when he's been able to get the ball to where it needs to go and let the receivers do the rest. 
And then you also talked about the coaching staff, which I think has done a good job as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's a solid start for this this franchise. It's looking like it's trending in the right direction. We'll see if that continues throughout the rest of this year, obviously over the next couple of years. Um, why, why we are talking about Bryce Young and CJ Stroud, while I think it is we're at the point now where we can say, yes, Shroud has the better rookie year. Bryce is not. You cannot use this as an overall, like, well, this is definitive of who they are as players. Like, stuff can change. Uh, we saw this with the Jared Goff, Carson Wentz uh, several years back. And I'm not saying that's going to be the course for these two players. It's just more one of those things you can't pass a final judgment in this situation. Uh, but a team that despite some of the issues they've had at quarterback, and this is more injury related, they don't look like they've lost this step. They had an injury to their star wide receiver, all all pro last year in Justin Jefferson. Uh, they start one and four this year, and somehow the Vikings are now, what, five and four, six and four? Um, yeah, five six and, and four. four. Five and Six four. and four. Five, it's five and four, yeah. Yeah, they, I forgot they had their bye. And they, they look great. Like, I mean, it's they have Josh Dobbs at quarterback. They've been balling with Jordan Addison and TJ Hawkinson. Their offensive line is homegrown and they're healthy. Uh, you have Brian Flores on that defense. And, and probably one of the most underrated defensive players in the league right now is Daniil Hunter, who is tied for the lead league in sacks with 11. And for guys who qualify on the line he's got the most tackles for losses right now with 14 and then on the offensive side like i was saying a little bit ago jordan addison he's an offensive rookie of the year candidate and and jefferson's about to come back like this isn't this is a team that i think a lot of people thought were going to regress maybe miss the playoffs and just kevin o'connell brian flores they are putting on a show and it's special to see like this is a legitimately good team and they probably will stay that way over the next couple of years because of how they cleaned house in the offseason with Queze to build towards the future. Yeah, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago and like the coach section about Kevin O'Connell. He and Brian Flores both have put the team on their back over this stretch. Like you said, they started one and four and lost the best wide receiver in football, in my opinion, and Justin Jefferson to IR. And everything kind of looked grim there, but they've reeled off four straight. They lose Kirk Cousins and then bring in a guy who hadn't practiced with the team and get the win against, uh, it was Atlanta, right? Josh Dobbs' first win. Yep. Yeah. He comes in in the second quarter after their rookie QB gets hurt. They get the win there. And then this Jalen Duran looked good on that first drive until he got a concussion from like a completion yard standpoint. So it's like, yeah, yeah Kevin uh, O'Connell's J clicking. Jaron Hall. Yeah, Jaron Hall, uh, yeah. my bad. <laughs> you got, uh, we got basketball on the brain because the Hornets are playing <laughs> tonight. But uh, yeah, no, uh, they, it, it feels like they haven't missed a beat with these guys going out. And these aren't like, bums or anything by any means we're talking about the best receiver in football and Kirk Cousins who we can say what we want about him I thought he's playing top like top five to ten ball this year before he got hurt he I was. thought he was playing lights out and so even without that they're able to bring in guys like rookie QB bring in a journeyman now like Josh Dobbs who don't want to diminish Dobbs he's been excellent this year with both the uh, Arizona Cardinals and the Vikings but they bring these guys in and it fits seamlessly and then like you said they add Jordan Addison in the first round who is looking like an offensive rookie of the year candidate. I think Stroud's got that wrapped up. But Jordan Addison, I would say second. He's been excellent so far. And then on the defensive side of the ball, we talk about them losing talent along that D-line when they uh, traded in. Smith, yeah, Tomlinson. Smith and Tomlinson lost them both to the Browns. Uh, but then Daniil Hunter, who's still there, who there were rumors that uh, they were going to trade him in the offseason. Good thing they didn't 
because with yep. Brian Flores calling the defense, he leads the league in sacks and or is tied for the lead league and is leading in tackles for loss. So they're firing on all cylinders despite a talent disadvantage uh, due to injury or losing people in free agency or just not having the, the guys there to begin with via free agency or the draft, like on the defensive side of the ball. They're firing on all cylinders, and this is a team that I wouldn't want to play uh, coming November, December because they're just winning. And I think that they're going to sneak that last NFC wildcard spot because between the division leaders, then you have Dallas and Seattle, I would say, are the two other wildcards. Yep. That, that seventh spot is looking bleak. So anybody can grab it. And I think Minnesota's playing the best out of every other NFC team right now. And is probably in the that, driver's that wild card spot. Yeah. And like two, two games ahead. So like, like you said, like it's theirs and, um, to lose and have wins over both the Falcons and saints, which is going to be important because I think one of those two teams could end up competing for that spot as well. It could, uh, you could have the bucks kind of sneak mm-hmm. into that spot if they, they win a couple games down the stretch and they do have the tiebreaker at the top of the year. But, um, like you said, the other two teams, like they have those tiebreakers, they're looking hot right now. They're about to get an addition to the offense and that's going to be huge. Like I think down the stretch, like this could be a scary team. Like you said, you don't want to face this team now. Like this was a team that you wanted to play earlier in the year, uh, clutch out a few wins against them. Um, because right now they're on fire. Now, teams that are on fire, but it's more of a dumpster <laughs> fire. Um, we're we're going to start with the team that, um, and it's interesting because this coach has has ties to Andy Reid and his time in Philadelphia. And Andy Reid, when he was in Philadelphia, was in control of personnel. Um, he was he was a guy that had a lot of control over the roster and just how the team went about doing stuff. And it worked because Andy Reid is an absolute genius. Um, but McDermott, he's he's kind of gotten that control freak nature in Buffalo. He rubbed Brian Dable the wrong way when they played the Giants. You would think that if you worked together for several years, there would be like a cordial like talk or greet and they didn't even want to talk to each other. And so it's it's stuff like that. And then he he fires Ken Dorsey. He fired Leslie Frazier last year. And it's just he's rubbing guys in the building the wrong way. This team is five and five. The defense is wiped with injuries. This offense, even though it is one of the most efficient, has a lot of like bad luck in terms of turnovers and and other bad plays and mistakes and it's one of these things is this something that you can clean up and actually position yourself towards the future because from a cap standpoint they're kind of strapped at the moment the buffalo bills the team we're talking about here over the past probably two to three years now at the top of the year we talk about these guys as either the number one super bowl contender or the second or third Mm -hmm. uh and i think this year people were talking about on multiple different uh news outlets, podcasts, what have you, that this would be the best version of this like era of the Bills. And so far, it's looked like the worst version. Today, I think the big news story today was that they fired offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey after losing last night to the Denver Broncos. There's a ton of metrics out there that support that Dorsey's been pretty good this year. Uh, if I pull some of them up, it's like they're, uh, let's see, I got I got a look at the DMs and find it. Yeah. Like Dorsey's first 25 games versus Dable's last 25 games, their previous offensive coordinator Dorsey's leads in EPA per play success rate, red zone, EPA per play, red zone success. And then 
when Dable was there, they had better defensive EPA per play, starting field position, and offensive points per game. So uh, it's easy to see that they had a better defense when Dable was there. Also, who's calling the defenses now? McDermott. But, you know, mm-hmm. Dorsey was, I think it's pretty clear that he was a scapegoat firing. Now, a lot of Bills fans don't like what Dorsey's doing. Uh, I don't particularly watch every Bills game, so I couldn't tell you from a schematic standpoint if, if he's not calling the right things or calling bad sets or something like that. But the numbers support that their offense has been playing well. It's just, one, their defense has regressed heavily since Leslie Frazier stepped away and McDermott's had to start calling plays. And when Whoa. our last year – I was going to say uh, McDermott's last year in Carolina, he didn't have the greatest defensive performance either. So that, like, I think that kind of highlights that he's not the defensive so, mastermind per se. I, I think if we're, we're going to talk about this from like a mastermind standpoint, like what Brian Flores is doing in Minnesota just shows his brilliance as a play caller, as somebody who understands his personnel. I think with McDermott, when you looked at when he had Tredavious White, when he had Matt Milano, when he had Daquan Jones, when he had those guys in those positions, this was a suffocating defense that knew how to play together, succinct. And it, it does it does think when you lose those kind of guys, but there are defenses that are performing just as well, if not better, with less talent. So it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it is like you said, this is in kind of McDermott's corner. He he fires Leslie Frazier, who was doing a great job before that. There's there was clearly uh, well, some cutting. I, I think that was I think that was a soft firing. I think like, uh, Frazier just st- like kind of stepped away from the team in the offseason. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. and that's fair. It was more one of those things that like I. I, I don't know. Like if, if I'm McDermott and I'm, I'm worried about kind of keeping the team together, that's somebody that I want to make sure I keep in the room or I'm replacing with somebody else. Like he didn't go after a Steve Wilkes. He didn't go after a Jim Schwartz. He, he didn't go after one of those guys where it's like, okay, let's make this defense better. He was like, no, I got this. And, and what has it turned into? It's just a complete mess. And now you have Joe Brady who, yes, called plays in Carolina, but I don't think that helps your offense. Because, like, Joe Brady, who's going to be the quarterback's coach? Like, there's a reason why you have some of these guys involved. And if you're trying to overstretch some of these guys, you're probably going to end up with more mistakes because you have less people paying attention to those little minute details that matter. Right. We we often attribute Josh Allen's uh, success, his big jump that he took, to when Dable took over play calling. But – when Dable took over play calling, he was the QB coach there. It was Ken Dorsey. That's the guy working with Josh Allen more than any other coach in the room. And so when Dorsey took the play calling reins, it was easy to see why the offense continued to have success. Even I even talked about it when we did the AFC East episode. Last year was the big turnover year for Allen, but he, he had less turnovers with Ken Dorsey than he did with Dable the previous year. Now this year is a little different. Josh Allen is going back to his josh allen ways and just is throwing weird turnovers for no reason like some of them are are bad like they bounce off a receiver's hands but some of them it's like instead of running for a first it's like that fourth down instead of running for the first down there he just sailed it over the receiver's head and turnover on downs there and some of them are just bad interceptions and stuff like that but 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 the issue is is he's trying to force way too much there's there's stuff to play in structure and i i understand from some of the bills fans uh, some of the schematics are a little bit vanilla but there are guys open on some of these play designs like it it, like this whole concept that like dorsey is the problem it's like there's been now back-to-back games broncos and Bengals, where dalton kincaid has come across the middle wide open and it would have been a 20 plus yard game and it's just he's not hitting those all of this to say that Dorsey is not the problem with the Buffalo Bills, in my opinion. 
their defense has not been playing up to par in years past. Now, they have had defensive injuries uh, over the past couple of weeks, but guess what? Every team has defensive injuries to stars. I think even the Panthers' defense has been better without J.C. Horn uh, than their defense has been the past few weeks without Milano and Daquan Jones and uh, Trey White and their injuries and stuff like that. Their defense hasn't uh, played up to par. The offense is good, but it's very turnover. Like it, They give the ball away a lot. So it's like you can't really attribute this to Ken Dorsey. To me, this was a scapegoat firing because McDermott can't fire himself. And so we're looking at a team that's now 5-5. Five and five. Uh, This might be their first time be- like at or below 500, like disregarding week ones in a while for the Buffalo Bills because they've been mm-hmm. so good the past few years. And looking at the rest uh, at the rest of their schedule, they have the New York uh, Jets this week. They obviously have the Patriots and Dolphins again, but it's not getting any easier. This is a team that could very easily miss the playoffs, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's the expectation at this point for the Bills. Yeah, no this this seems like a lost year, and from a cap standpoint, like how is kind of leading this conversation into. Um, they're not in a good place. They are right now second in effective cap space next year. They're going to have to make some restructures, maybe cut guys. And that means that you aren't going to be able to add necessarily any more talent except through the draft. And it's at that point, you, you got to really like shoot for the moon. You hit a home run and that's not something that beans done in previous draft classes. So it, it becomes very problematic. These are two guys that the bills front office or ownership extended this past off season. Right. And it's, it's falling apart. And this was stuff that in Diggs, Diggs is still playing at a high level. He's getting older. Like, so if he, he ends up regressing next year, like Gabe Davis isn't going to step into that role. You, you don't have the future wide receiver number one. Your offensive line's okay. It's not great. It's, it, I don't know, man. And and part of it goes to Bean. Like he he drafts Dalton Kincaid. He drafts James Cook. Uh, he trades for Naheem Hines. And those are picks and, and cap space that you could have allocated towards wide receivers, towards maybe some more defensive depth. I, I I don't know. It just it's you you could have spent a lot more of that on premium positions instead of non-premium. And we've talked about this from different different points of view with other organizations. Some of that stuff bites you in the tail when it's all said and done. What record do you think they need to attain to gain a wild card spot with the way the AFC is playing right now? If they're I five think, and I think, five I think right it's, now, I think ten wins is what they need. Yeah, you you have to go yeah. five and two down the stretch, and they still have what the Eagles, the Chiefs. Yeah, I'm, like I'm going to read off. I'm going to read off the schedule yeah. for you. You ready? So they're hosting. They're hosting the Jets this week. Then they go to Philadelphia, to Kansas City. Then they host the Cowboys. Then they go to L.A. for the Chargers. Host the Patriots. Then they go to Miami to close out the year. Like, that is less than ideal. At, at best, and this is this is what you have to hope for. You you beat the Jets, you beat the Chargers, you beat the Patriots. Mm-hmm. So those are three wins right there. You need two more, which means you have to probably go one and two versus the Chiefs, Eagles, Cowboys. Because I, I don't I don't think you're winning two of those games of the state of this. So somehow you go one and two, you win the games you're supposed to. You need Miami to have already locked up the division, not be in a position where they can move. I, like seed wise up any further to like the one seed to get a buy and they rest their starters. So you can win in week 18. That is the yeah. only way in Miami in. too. In Miami exactly. Too. And you, yeah. and you got, and that's just the win 10 games teams like the Steelers or the Browns could be right there in the thick of it. And they may have a couple tiebreakers in you in the conference. And it's just, yeah, the, the like Bengals that. already have a tiebreaker over them. 
Exactly. And now the Bengals, they don't look so hot either. They they could right. be down on the pecking pole, but it's it's one of those things that it doesn't help you that teams that you're going to be fighting with for that spot already have an edge on you. Yeah, it's a uh, it's just a rough outlook for the Bills this year, and I think the Bills conversation is going to be expedited throughout the rest of the season just because of the Ken Dorsey firing this morning. And then we have another team that's disappointed us. It kind of has some Bills flavor to it with their head coach coming from the Buffalo Bills two years ago. That's the New York Giants. After last year, we talk about the uh, the Minnesota Vikings, a team last year that mm-hmm. was like, what, 9-0 and in one-score games or something like that. And they after a rough start, they've bounced back and they've kept going. Well, last year, the New York Giants were also, I believe, like 7-1, and 8-1, one-score games, something like that. They beat the Vikings in the playoffs. And then to start the year... They've been nothing short of horrendous. They they didn't really do a ton in order to get Daniel Jones more downfield weapons. They added Jalen Hyatt, who's been okay. They went and traded for Darren Waller, who after that first preseason game against us where he torched us on the first drive, hasn't done a whole lot for him. And their offensive line hasn't improved a ton. And now Daniel Jones is out for the year and Tyrod Taylor's on IR. It's just not been a great start for the New York Giants. Well, you, you talk about the Vikings. It's it's almost like, and, and Queze, their uh, general manager, has a analytics background. He understood that the team lucked into that 13-4 and four record. That that really, like the roster that was built was not a 13-4 and four roster. It, it was not um, smart to keep some of those pieces away, and it was smart to start planning towards the future. And so what does he do? He lets guys walk in free agency. He trades a few pieces. He he smartly pivots towards the future. And after the one and four start, a lot of people weren't happy with it because exactly like what you said, they're 13 and four. They're a really good team the year before. They pull it all together. They have good coaching. They have a good core. They have a good nucleus. And things look like they're going right. When you look at the New York Giants, they extended Daniel Jones when they should have franchise tagged him. They then signed Saquon to a two-year uh, – no, they tagged him, and then I think they and signed him to like an extension. Yeah, yeah that's right, mm-hmm. And which is stuff that you, you – at, at worst, like if you wanted to hand him a two-year, almost fully guaranteed contract, whoop-de-doo, that wouldn't be more money than you're in right now with Daniel Jones. And now that you're on your third-string quarterback, you are this bad, you would be in a position now to get maybe one of the top two quarterbacks in this draft, which if you're Brian Dable, you're looking to kind of remold this team into your image with your kind of like guy at quarterback, this would be the opportunity to do it. But what they've done from a cap standpoint is they've shot themselves in a foot to then add pieces around that next guy. And that's the issue with kind of some of this team building stuff when you look across the NFL, that some of these contracts and the way you structure them do matter. And the Giants have not done it right after they got really lucky on their first year on the job. Yeah, I think uh, I think the year that Daniel Jones had last year was pretty anomalous from his, I guess, career standpoint. He'd been a, a pretty big turnover machine, hadn't really produced a ton. And then Dable comes in, energizes everything. All right, it's all good. And we had success last year, so now we have to extend him. But we can't franchise tag him because we want to keep Saquon here too. So we can't. We have to extend him, not franchise tag him. And with that, even when he was playing this year, he wasn't playing particularly well. I think he was back to his old ways of uh, 
less ball control in the pocket, uh, like happy feet in the pocket, not hitting guys downfield, stuff like that. And it's all just backfire. Like you said, they haven't prepared for the future. They're riding the uh, the coattails of the, I don't want to say fake success, because anytime you win a playoff game, that's successful. Winning, Going to the playoffs and winning playoffs games is hard. We know that as Panthers fans. But when you, when you get that, and it's your first year as a head coach, I guess you kind of want to chase that feeling. And it probably wasn't the right thing to do when obviously there's two teams better than them for sure in the division in the reigning Super Bowl runner-ups in the Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys, who I've said over and over have the best roster in football. And it looks like they prove it every time they play the Giants. I think their their series record or series points against them this year is 89 to 7. So like this wasn't a team that was going to win their division. Even Washington's looking better than them this year. They yep. were going to win their division. And so that leaves them with one or two wild card spots and they weren't better than the Seahawks or the Cowboys coming into this year. They weren't, but I don't even think they're better than the saints. And I don't think the saints are very good. So like, I I don't know what they saw in themselves to like try to chase the success. They definitely should have pulled a page out of uh Queze's book there in Minnesota and kind of reined in the expectations and tried to build towards the future. Because even with like, say they do end up with a top, pick this year and take like Caleb Williams or something they're still going to be on the hook or even if they mm-hmm. cut Daniel Jones that cap hit's going to be uh horrendous. well Daniel Jones when if he as long as he stays on the roster next year the year after they can cut him so the thing is they bring in a rookie they can sit him behind Jones if they want to for whatever reason uh or right, they can but- have Daniel Jones as a quality backup but you are going to have Jones on the book and on the roster for one more year yeah, that's my point. They have to keep – if you're drafting Caleb Williams or Drake May, you're not sitting them no matter what. Otherwise, your fans are going to, like, storm the stadium or storm uh, Joe Shane's house. You're not sitting Caleb Williams or Drake May behind uh, Daniel Jones. 100%. Like, if you take a rookie QB in the second or third, sure, all right. But that's not happening. And so if they want to keep Daniel Jones because they have to keep him next year, maybe they take a receiver for him. But what if he doesn't up his game to what he did two years ago? Well, then – was it worth it at all? Now they have to take a QB in the following draft. And it's just, it's a slippery slope that they put themselves on because they're unwilling to see the future in front of them in terms of like current success, I guess. I don't know. No, I, I think those are, those are fair points. And I, I think it's a good synopsis for kind of this section is that like smart teams do, do really good things for their, their team in the long run. And, and really, I, I would say emotionally driven or, or or teams that are are stuck kind of in the present do some really poor things and make bad decisions for the future. And that's the dichotomy between the Minnesota Vikings right now and the New York Giants. And I, I think that's just a testament to the differences and philosophies with Queze and, and Joe Shine. So um, moving forward, we have a game that we want to talk about. And I, I think it's a good game to talk about for a lot of reasons, because these are two of the top teams in each of their respective conferences and the San Francisco 49ers, they kind of shake free from a three game losing streak and completely dominate the Jacksonville Jaguars on the road. Um, What were some of the key takeaways you took away from this? Because the Jaguars, even despite the loss are still the third seed right now in the AFC. Yeah. uh, The main takeaway obviously is that the uh, Christian McCaffrey touchdown streak is broken. I mean, They tried everything, even when Darnold was in. They ran four plays for him, uh, goal to go, and he wasn't able to get in. So super unfortunate there. But no, I think the main takeaway here for me is that the Niners are back to where they were in the first five weeks. Completely dominant on both sides of the ball. Purdy distributed the ball to everybody but McCaffrey for touchdowns. 
And then on the defensive side of the ball, they were able to just shut down the Jags offense, which throughout this season, I think has been kind of, uh, kind of underwhelming to most of us here who thought that myself included, I thought Lawrence would be an MVP candidate. I know both of us were high on Ridley and it's just been kind of underwhelming. I think, uh, they, they're coming into this week, obviously, before last night's games when I wrote this. They were 23rd in EPA per play. Lawrence is up in turnovers this year. It's just, I don't know, the offense seems to struggle when they're playing against good teams. I think a large part of that comes from the fact that one of the biggest weaknesses on this Jaguars team that isn't talked about is that their offensive line just really isn't good. I know we talked about how they they got uh, Robinson back from suspension about like four or five games into the year. But the, the rest of the guys, whether it's Anton Harrison on the right tackle or Little who slid in to, to guard after playing left tackle, this isn't a good offensive line. And so you see a lot of quick game from this offense. And Tua has the fastest time to throw. And that is a testament to how bad the Dolphins of Dolphins offensive line is like it's just it's atrocious it's well, it's, it's a testament to Tua as well he gets the ball quick no no absolutely but I'm saying like that's scheme driven that like hey we understand our weakness and we're just not going to keep the ball in our, our quarterback's hands and he has a concussion issue well the guy that's right after him so Tua he, he gets the ball out in about 2.38 seconds on average and Lawrence gets it out at the second fastest time at 2.44 so this is this is a team that tries to work around that quick game. And the last time we saw the 49ers play an offense that was trying to generate kind of more yak production from just kind of checking it down and and moving the chains that way were the Dallas Cowboys. And when they went to Santa Clara, they got absolutely embarrassed. And that's part of the reason is because of Fred Warner. Like that that is a sideline the sideline linebacker who's going to take that away and if you can't push the ball downfield which they couldn't hold on to the ball. I mean, at one point they had Chase Young and Nick Boza lining up over the A gap, dude. Like <laughs> it, it's one thing to see Miles Garrett do that. To see those two guys do it? Like no. Not, like no. Like at that point it's over. It's uh, and it's it's those kind of concepts where it's just they could use their strength and put it against another team's weakness, and there really wasn't anything they could do about it. So I know a lot can be hampered on. Lawrence has a lot of turnovers this year. Um, they aren't as efficient as they have been. And I think that a lot of that comes to the fact that they have first-year play caller Press Taylor, who hasn't been all that impressive. I think Doug Peterson needs to kind of take back over the play-calling duties and, and build a spark going into the playoffs because they, they have the potential to be special. I agree. I, uh, regarding the Nick Bosa and Chase Young thing, I thought that was the matchup uh, that Dom or that really showcased the game, the Niners D-line against the Jags' bad O-line. But talking about the play-calling duties and the coaching duties there in general, I still think they should run away with this division and win the division, frankly, and host a home playoff game. But I think you're right. The difference between being the three seed or the one seed where I projected them to be in the AFC, I think you also had them as a one or two seed in the AFC as well. I think that difference is going to be Doug Peterson's creativity and they can get away with having press Taylor call games against teams that uh, aren't too, too good, like Tennessee coming up. But after that, you have it marked down here at Houston, Cincinnati at Cleveland, and then Baltimore. They mm -hmm. need to be on their a game for those teams because the teams that they've struggled against are good teams in the chiefs, the Texans and the 49ers. So I think that the no, they did beat the bills in London and they, they have well, had a couple impressive wins on their resume i don't want to discount that that was also when the bills defense was struggling pretty mightily uh i would say there and <laughs> i saw i don't know 
just the Bills are the Bills are just a head case right now. But I think uh, when they when they're going up against that kind of mini gauntlet, Houston, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Baltimore, they're going to need to be on their A game. And if they struggle versus Tennessee, I do wonder if Doug Peterson's kind of like reigns press Taylor in and says, "All right, I've got it from here. You've done good so far." And if we want to make a deep playoff run and maybe secure that number one seed and get that bye week, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. I, I mean, Houston went into their house and beat them, and then you're going to be on the road there. They dominated um, them. That game was 37-17. I remember that. Yeah. No, they pulled away in the second half. It was a little bit close in the first half, but you're absolutely right. Um, Cincinnati has looked good offensively. Defensively, they haven't, but that's one of those things. Can the Jaguars offense take advantage of that? Um, Cleveland and Baltimore's defenses, those are stout units. And I, exactly like you said, they they haven't gotten away from the sense of like they've been able to do stuff and like the the hell that mike mcdonald uh, mcdaniel uh, i can't pronounce this guy's name mike mcdonald, mike McDonald there we go not mcdaniel um made that mistake on one of the first episodes of this podcast almost made it there again um like the way their defenses are firing like when you you saw him against the the lions and then the Seahawks. Um, the Seahawks, like he put those quarterbacks in a torture chamber. Like the simulated pressures, the way he was able to get after them, he, the way he was able to throw still like six or seven guys back in coverage and have like th there was one play, Geno Smith, it was a max protection like shotgun snap. The way they simulated the pressure, they were still able to get a one-on-one -on -one matchup with one of their better defensive linemen and they dropped six in the coverage and the Seahawks only had three guys out on routes. Like that's how you like stop an offense and you just suffocate them. And it's that kind of stuff that if the Jaguars don't clean up some of this, if they can't get Lawrence out in space, they can't protect him better. It's only going to go downhill from here because the next slate is not looking great. Yeah. They face a pretty good uh, defensive minded head coaches and Vrabel's kind of all around, but then D'Amico Ryan's Lou Anarumo, Jim Schwartz and Mike McDonald. And then, Kind of moving on to our coach talk segment, we have a defensive head coach, defensive minded head coach that we want to talk about this week. That's Jonathan Gannon. You had talked about it before the season that, hey, the Cardinals are going to be scrappy. And I was like, ah, whatever. They're, they're just a bad team. And they were scrappy their first eight or nine games without Kyler Murray. I think they were one and eight. Yeah. And then Kyler comes back this past week and they get the job done against a division rival for us, the Atlanta Falcons, a team that I think should win the division with their talent but they get the win there uh when with kyler coming back and kind of giving a jolt to that offense especially in the ground game he had that crazy third down run where he ran like 70 yards all the way around the field to escape him and convert it i think what jonathan gannon has done to keep his team being feisty should be talked about more granted they have a pretty poor record the second worst record behind or in front of us but uh he, he's got them playing hard and it didn't really look like it with all the offseason media stuff because he's kind of an awkward guy. He's kind of awkward in his speeches and stuff like that, his team speeches, his media presence, stuff like that. But there was another coach that was hired a couple years ago that was like that, too. And that was Nick Sirianni. I remember a lot of people mm -hmm. joked about, hey, is he drunk in his opening presser? But Jonathan Gannon has his guys playing hard and playing well. And that's what matters. Like maybe you don't need to be like the perfect media guy, but to be able to get your guys to like play every down and do the right thing. That's what he's, he has been able to do so far. And with them getting Houston's pick in this upcoming draft and them having a high draft pick, seems like they're building towards the right, uh, the right future with him at the helm. Well, 
they have Houston's first, they have their own first. And I don't know if they're going to use one of those firsts on a quarterback. They, they definitely could go that route, but I, think I would this, not, I would not. With, I know. I, I know. I think this coaching staff is, is very much in Kyler's corner. I think that's part of the reason why they got hired. Like I, I, I don't think a lot of people from like a, a, a general public or a media standpoint, when they see some of these headlines, they go, Oh, well, they're just going to pivot. Like the reason why Gannon got the job is he went, Hey, you just paid this guy. You believe he's the franchise cornerstone. And this is how we believe we're going to be able to use him to win games and, and you like build upon that. And and we're seeing it with Sean Payton with Russell Wilson. He's already thrown more touchdowns this year than he did all of last year. Um, and it's, it's when you have good coaching in the building, you have guys that believe in these players that you get the most out of some of these guys. And like you said, they have the first round pick from Houston. They have a third round pick also from Houston, and then they have a third round pick from the Titans. And so when you're, you're looking at about the first hundred picks and you have six picks in there, that's going to allow you, if you want to get him Harvin Harrison Jr. on a rookie contract and allow Kyler to throw to him. And then with that other first, you can throw it at defense and BJ Ojalari, they're second round pick last year is looking good um they have already a couple other pieces that they can kind of build around so it's like it's 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 exciting in arizona like this is this is something that you can clean up and build towards the future and and really build yourself out to be a playoff contender a couple years a couple years down the road i maybe next year uh depending on how good the draft class is but this this is a team that's ready to compete yeah, they're definitely trending in the right direction. And you talked about a coach believing in his players. I saw something uh, before the Dolphins and Chiefs played in Germany. It was a Rich Eisen segment, and it was talking about how Mike McDaniel told Tua that he believed in him. And, like, there's no, there's no, it's not going to be another quarterback. It's going to be you. And they might not have believed in you before, but I do. And to see the success that they're having there, I think it's a, a tangible thing to have your coach in your corner when – you might have gone through multiple different coordinators or play callers throughout your career. Kyler, like, I'm not saying this is Kyler because Kyler's had Cliff in his ear, like his whole career, basically, even going back to college. But, uh, like, it's important to have somebody believe in you. And Gannon seems, like, genuine in that belief in his own players. And I think it's really showing on both sides of the field, not just the defensive side there. Absolutely. Now, moving on to the next two coaches we want to talk about before we wrap up uh this section it's it's ben johnson and kellen moore they had an absolute barn burner on sunday in los angeles it was special to see i think there was at one point it was like eight or ten drives straight where it was like consecutive touchdowns uh if it wasn't including like the end of half um, they were seven of eight, both teams, I think combined on fourth down decisions. It might've been eight of nine at the end of the game. And it was just insane. Like the play calling was very good from both guys. Um, they were getting their, their playmakers open. Quentin Johnson, I think had, it, was it his first touchdown catcher? It was like his second. Touchdown I believe it was, year. I believe it was his first. And he had, he had like an 80 yard uh, screen that he would add a second as well. Yeah. And or, it was uh, just, it was yeah. Very cool to see them get their playmakers involved. Ben Johnson um, saw them loading up for a run on like a third and one, and he used the play action look to to score a touchdown with the tight end uh, mm -hmm. up the seam late in the game. And so it was very cool to see these little wrinkles, um, the, the Keenan Allen uh, looks that they were able to get. And it, he's a route runner out of the slot, and they were able to get a lot of misadvantages uh, from their mismatches, uh, disadvantages for the defense 
um, from his route combination. So it was just really cool to see what they did, uh, how they pieced it together. Um, and it's unfortunate that the Chargers have an abysmal defense and they they put Justin Herbert in these situations where he's facing a lot of 30-point uh, scores from his opponent, which makes it very hard to stay in games. Yeah, Ben Johnson and Kellen Moore, they were going from band for band. I think it, I think you're right. I think it was eight straight drives of touchdowns where it's like, all right, you got this. Well, I got this for you. All right, I got this for you. And it was just back and forth. We have, we're about to get to best performances, but both Amon Ra St. Brown and Keenan Allen absolutely ate both over 150 yards. Amon Ra had one touchdown. Keenan Allen had two touchdowns. But this was just a crazy offensive game. And like you're saying, it is crazy unfortunate for the Chargers that – they had to, they gave up 38 points because in the NFL, you should expect that 31 points wins, especially this year in a year where offenses are down, but it, it just didn't work out for them this week. Uh, it seems like a reoccurring theme that they do well on offense, especially with Kellen Moore now con plays and the defense just lets them down. Hopefully uh, they can end up moving on from Staley, which you have championed for like the last 18 months now or something like that. But yeah, it seems like they're just wasting these really good offensive performances. But this was a really, really, really good game to watch. I'm I'm in curious to see because there's been a lot of talks of Kellen Moore potentially becoming a head coach. Um, there's been a lot of circulation around the Washington football team. Oh, yeah, commanders, not football team anymore. Um, that Ron Rivera is kind of on his way out and Eric Bieniemy is kind of more in control and it's like, okay, does Eric Bieniemy become kind of the head coach? Because you don't want to see a lot of shifts with play callers um, and kind of the development of Sam Howell there. And I think with Justin Herbert, if right now it's working with Kellen Moore, do you have kind of the dirt cutter experience with Tampa Bay when he took over for, I believe it was Lovey Smith as the head coach. Mm -hmm. Um, you had the kind of a similar situation uh, with Tom Coughlin when Ben McAdoo kind of inherited the head coaching position there. It, does some of these wrinkles look like that may be the future for those two organizations next offseason? Because I don't know if the Chargers are going to get a better candidate uh, than who they have in the building already. Now, I don't know if Kellen Moore is a good head coach, um, but that's something that will be interesting to kind of monitor as the weeks go on and as the season wraps up. Well, he got a, a couple head coaching interviews this past cycle, one of them being our Carolina Panthers. So he definitely has the pedigree of the interview there. Of course, I don't know if he can lead men, which is obviously a big candidate for being head coach. We see what Gannon's doing and stuff like that. But uh, I, I could see something like that happening. Maybe he's like a head candidate this past or this uh, upcoming cycle for the Los Angeles Chargers, because I do think uh, Staley's days are numbered there, especially with them. They they did dip below 500 this week, right, after that loss? Yeah, they are right. four and five. They are currently third in the division, so it goes Chiefs. The Raiders are five and yeah, five. Yeah, the Raiders, yeah. <laughs> And then you have one. the Chargers at four and five and the Broncos are four and five too. So there's, there's a potential that if the Broncos, they've been heating up, if the Raiders keep playing well, like the Chargers could be the third or fourth like team in the division when it's all said and done this year, which is kind of wild to think about. Well, that's another uh, prime example. The Raiders, uh, after firing their head coach, uh, Josh McDaniels, their interim coach, Antonio Pierce, it seems like he has the locker room in a good state too because I think they're 2-0 and with him at the helm. And each time they get the win, they're out, they're having a great time in the locker room. So the, being a like a leader means something for head coaching uh, positions and just coaches in general. So it's going to be interesting to see if Kellen Moore has that in him if he's going to be able to take over the Chargers next offseason. 
Antonio Pierce has given off like Jason Garrett vibes when he took over for um, Wade Phillips in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Like that immediate boost. Everybody's playing well. Um, they don't obviously have the quarterback position figured out, but it's it's one of those things that's very interesting to see that. I think Rick Casario, uh, their one interim a couple years ago, led him to the playoffs after John Gruden got fired. So that's just, it's fun to see with the Raider Nation that like their interim coaches do better than their head coaches. Um, but moving on, we have the best performances. You alluded to the first one we talk about, uh, Mon Ra and Keenan Allen, both over 150 yards. Amon Ra, eight receptions and a tutty. Keenan Allen, 11 receptions and two tutties. Um, the next game, though, is the Cowboys beatdown of the Giants. Um, Brandon Cooks and CeeDee Lamb both had a, over 150 yards. Uh, they both had a score as well. Uh, they were cooking. Uh, this is this is an aerial attack in Dallas, and it picked up where it left off. Dak Prescott, I think, got benched in the third quarter, and Cooper Rush, I think, ended up with more passing yards than Tommy DeVito, who played the entire game, which is just wild to think about of just how, how on fire the Cowboys are, how they're clicking on all cylinders, and why I'm really scared about the matchup the Panthers have with them this Sunday. Yeah, uh, just looking at the uh, the notes here, it's like Amon Ross St. Brown and Keen Allen from the same game, so I'm on the same line. Brandon Cook, C.D. Lamb, same game, but same team, and we have mm-hmm. them on the same line. Combined for 20 receptions, that's, what's that, 324 yards and two touchdowns between the two. And yep. other people got involved too. Ferguson had a touchdown. Uh, I think somebody else had a touchdown. It was just an excellent day for the Cowboys offense and defense for that matter against the pretty disappointing Giants. We alluded to them before. And then we have another pair of teammates in the best performances section. The Houston Texans starting running back this week because Damian Pierce was out. Devin Singletary had a career high 30 carries for 150 yards and a touchdown. And wide receiver Noah Brown, former Cowboy last year, seven receptions for 172 yards. This just goes back to what we were talking about, how the Texans are building. They're bringing in the right guys. Even a guy like Devin Singletary, who didn't start the year, or Noah Brown, who started the year injured. I think he was even on IR to start the year. These guys come in and perform against what I think is a pretty, like, okay to stout defense in the Cincinnati Bengals. They still put up uh, they've, they've allowed over 300 passing yards uh, to the last four quarterbacks they face. So the Bengals gotcha. defense is getting torched. So, so yeah. they're, they're, uh, they're on a, a pretty big skid there. But still, these two guys are performing for the team. And it's given Shroud a good outlet and a good like good players to get the ball to to move the ball down the field. Yeah. And that's... It's it's exciting to see when you can put guys around your quarterback who are playmakers. Like Devin Singletary was that kind of like pass down back. Damian Pierce was their bruiser back. And he hasn't been playing all too well this year. But Singletary, he was a starter in Buffalo for several years. Noah Brown, a good free agent ad. He was playing well in Dallas last year. And Tank Dell, he gets a little banged up. And they start throwing Noah Brown's way. And he starts cooking. And and Dalton Schultz has been cooking this year. It's just, it's really cool to see just how everything's gelling for that offense. It seems like every button they're pressing is working for them. And it's, it's fun to see. Um, moving into the MVP watch, if you guys have kind of tuned in with some of our best performances, we haven't had a lot of quarterbacks on there. Uh, Dak Prescott threw for over 400 yards this week, but quarterback play and performances just have been down overall. So it's like, 
who who gets the MVP? I know you threw out uh, pre-recording like Patrick Mahomes. Does he run it back? Like it feels like the the Aaron Rodgers, I believe, 2014 MVP season or 2013, where it was like his second year in a row. Um, no one really else deserved it outside of maybe JJ Watt. And that's why, like, my question I want to pose to you is, is this the year that a wide receiver wins it? Maybe an edge player? Like, is there somebody other than quarterback going to win it this year? Because like, if there was going to be somebody, it'd be this year. Uh, I think, uh, the two guys you have here, Tyree Kill and AJ Brown, uh, when Dylan Jackson was on here, he said the same thing. They're going to have to have monster years to overcome the the QB deserves the award kind of stigma because like like Tua and Jalen Hurts are playing at pretty good levels, but not at like a, an MVP level per se. That's why I have Mahomes with a question mark. I had Lamar Jackson last week. He was my preseason pick to an MVP, but he didn't play the best against the Browns. Like granted, the Browns defense is pretty good, but he still didn't play the best. And so like – is this the year a receiver wins it? Like you never know, but it's going to be hard to keep somebody who gets 2000 yards out of the MVP conversation. It was the same thing with uh, Christian McCaffrey who uh, granted his tight end streak did break, but or not tight end uh, touchdown streak, excuse me, did end this past week, but he was still being productive throughout the re- or the previous couple of games. And it's like, does a skill player finally win it for the first time since Adrian Peterson? Are we gonna like Miles Garrett, for example? You also have on here, or even Daniel Hunter, if their if their team turns up and gets some wins. Well, like, there. Who's who's talking about Daniel Hunter? And like, I I don't want to be right, mean it, to but him, he has, but he's not he like has a, the name value. But like, if he ends up with twenty two sacks and twenty tackles for loss, like that that means so. And if their team wins, well, like Justin like 11 Justin games. Houston, I think the year it was like we're we're talking about like JJ yeah. Watt like was in contention. Justin Houston, I think, had twenty plus sacks that year, and he wasn't he wasn't talked about in that regard. And I think the reason why he wasn't he it's wasn't leading his defensive yeah. unit. And then the team like obviously is like in playoff contention, but the playoffs are like at such a higher level in terms of competition wise in the AFC. And so for what? them to be six and three and be as dominant as they are is is impressive. Yeah, no, I'm not taking anything away from Garrett. That's why I said uh, they'd have to win a bunch more games for him to be in contention. But like an edge rusher like Garrett or Hunter, people with big like uh, yeah. stats right now is what I'm saying. Um, like, yeah, that could be a year for them. But it's like, I don't know, because everybody's just kind of the, the quarterbacks. Not everybody's just kind of down this year. So if this was if there were any year for a non QB to win it in recent NFL history, this seems like the year. But it's going to take a lot. Like I said, it's going to be 2K yards for a receiver. It's going to be McCaffrey getting like 25 to 30 all-purpose touchdowns. And I don't think that's possible anymore. Um, it's going to be Miles Garrett breaking Michael Strahan's sack record. Or I, I believe TJ Watt tied it now, so it's the Strahan-Watt tied record. But um, it's going to take something phenomenal, like something we haven't seen in so, so long. So I, with that in mind, I do think it'll re- end up reverting back to quarterback on number one or two seed in their respective conference absolutely and it it seems like that like Mahomes will probably just win it just because of name value and how good the Chiefs are and it's exactly like you said I want to see down this this kind of second half of the season stretch Tyree Kill AJ Brown both had their bye weeks this past week if they can like tear it up and they can they're already both I think over a thousand yards nine games in so it's it's one of those things 2k is not out of the picture so I think one of those guys could carry their teams and if AJ Brown and the Eagles are the number one seed in uh, the NFC like I, I that that makes it a discussion I, I think you have to have his name at least in the top three uh if you're you're really going to treat this as like an MVP uh talk as we wrap up the season now um, the Panthers, uh, unfortunately don't have anybody who will 
be in the MVP conversation, I think, let alone in the Pro Bowl conversation. I, I We might have one or two guys, but um, we're going to be playing a team that is loaded. Uh, like you said, one of the best rosters top to bottom, and that's the Dallas Cowboys. We host them. Uh, they're a well-traveled team. They're America's team, as uh, most Cowboys fans would like to say. Um, what is it that you think we can take advantage of against them to make this a game? And by make this a game, I mean keep it to about a 10-point margin. And that seems to be something I say every week, but what are those keys to a minor victory that would be on Sunday? Well, okay, the first key, we need Brian Burns and J.C. Horn back. And J.C. Horn has been designated to return to practice, so there's good hope that he comes back this week. And I'm not too sure of Brian Burns's concussion status. Like sometimes these things take more than one or two weeks because like it, the serious nature of a head injury. So I think that's the first key. We need our stars on defense back. And then I think the other thing, and you've written about it here is that the Cowboys deploy dime and nickel, like a heavy person, like heavy percent of the time, which is multiple DBs. So if there were any time for the Panthers to uh, much to Frank Reich chagrin to become a smash mouth football team, this is the week to do it, but uh, I don't know if they're going to be able to commit to running the ball. About 96% of the plays the Dallas Cowboys have run on defense this year. Um, about 38%. No, am I reading this right? Yep. 38% is nickel, uh, which is a standard package across the board. It's where you have five defensive backs, um, it depends on the variation. You could have a three-three-five, which is three de uh, defensive linemen, three linebackers, or you can do a four-two-five, and and they have kind of a mixture of that. But they run dime almost sixty percent of the time, which is which is insane. Um, they they do have a lot of quote-unquote smaller bodies that if you were to run a twenty-one personnel or heavy personnel, you probably would find a little bit more success in the run game. But the issue is, is the Panthers run 11 personnel 90 plus percent of the time. Mm -hmm. And and that is exactly what nickel and dime package is meant to suffocate. And then on top of this, Gus Bradley, who completely made a mockery of our offense in multiple ways the last time we played at Bank of America against the Colts, he was a former defensive coordinator for the Seattle Seahawks when the Legion of Boom was starting. When he went to Jacksonville, his replacement was Dan Quinn who then became the Atlanta Falcons head coach, and now he's the defensive coordinator for Dallas. But it's one of those things that he's going to be able to deploy some of those same concepts and be able to give us some of the looks that gave us trouble. And it, that's worrisome. They match up really, really well. Their defensive line is going to destroy our offensive line. Like we talked about, the Bears generated 20 pressures on 38 dropbacks. Over 50% of the time, the Bears were able to, and they are the worst at getting after the quarterback this year. So it, it's, I just, I, like, it's hard. It's, it, it's, it's hard to see us being competitive in this game because they match up so well to what we do, and we do not do enough of the things well that would make them pay. Yeah, um, we talk about the Bears getting 20 pressures. Micah Parsons himself might have uh, 20 pressures against us this week. I think it's going to be rough. Uh, I see a tweet right now uh, from Joe Person. Ian Thomas is coming back from IR this week, but Hayden Hurst is now in the concussion protocol. So uh, 
one step forward, like five steps back, I guess. Hopefully we'll see a lot more of uh, Tommy Tremble and Stephen Sullivan this week, Stephon Sullivan this week, because I think those, those two have been our most productive tight ends so far this year. I think Tremble's been the most productive in the red zone. But, um, yeah, it, it's just looking bleak. And uh, this is a, a red zone week for sure, not a Panthers week. But uh, moving yeah. forward – oh, go ahead. Well, I, w- I was going to say this synopsis. I know I just like really, really d- dug in there with the Panthers offense. From a defensive perspective, we do really well against 11 personnel. We're about league average, and that's pretty good considering the amount of injuries that we've taken on that side of the ball. Uh, we get J.C. Horn back. We get Brian Burns back. You're able to shut down C.D. Lamb, take away some of those looks. I think we can make it competitive for about 30 minutes, but I feel like the offense is constantly going to be in a three and out mode to where come the second half, that's when the Cowboys kind of really open it up, whether it's the run game, uh, they are able to execute on some of their pass play concepts. Uh, and we're, we're going to see that. Um, I think if, uh, if I was Mike McCarthy, I would gen- do a lot more 12 and 13 personnel uh, when offenses have gotten bigger against the Panthers defense. Uh, the defense has struggled a little bit more. So um, that that would be kind of where I would take the angle if I were the Cowboys offense. But I think strength on strength, we do have a good matchup there, especially if some of our stars are coming back. You know what uh, this is going to remind me of? The Dolphins game where it's like we started – well, I don't know, remember if it was 14-0 or 14-7, but it was like, man, we're we're doing it, right? Nope. We were not, we in fact were not doing it and we lost 42 to 21. I feel like something like that's coming up, but hopefully, hopefully we keep it closer than that. Hopefully we pull it off. You never know. We almost beat the Cowboys uh, with Darnold a couple years ago, so you never know. But um, moving forward, uh, we always talk about college standouts from the previous week. There weren't a ton of great games this past week. The big one, obviously, was Michigan Penn State, top 10 ranked matchup. Uh, I don't know why they keep ranking Penn State. They're always overrated, and they always fold to Ohio State and Michigan. But I think the two standouts in this game were both Michigan quarterbacks, Blake Corum, who was in the Heisman conversation last year before he got injured, and his backup, who actually shares time with him now this year because he was so good last year in uh, relief of Corum, Donovan Edwards. They're both the engines of the Wolverines offense. They're both uh, pretty draftable running backs that they could contribute early. And they keep that uh, Michigan offense moving. Uh, quarterback J.J. McCarthy did not have a good day for Michigan, but they didn't need him to have a good day because both of these guys can tote the rock. They can do short yardage. They can move in space. They both played really well. And then you the, the actually McCarthy won- game. Okay. But like, let's be honest. The guy threw the ball eight times. Like all they did was oh. call run plays. And like, you can do that against Penn state. Like they're a very fast, very they, physical. They defense, did call uh 30 straight run plays. Uh, if I recall that game correctly, it was 30 straight, which that's just bizarre. They're a very good, uh, very good run team. But um, I want to look at the, Oh, I can see how many pass. Yeah, he did take eight, eight pass attempts. That's crazy. That's what I'm saying. Like it was. Yeah. I I watched the game and it was it was interesting to see at the beginning they were they had a, a nice blend of run and pass and like you said it was like the last 25 30 plays just running it. I understand they have a lead. You don't want to make a costly mistake, but like like this is a rival. Well, like run well, up the scoreboard. Like show what you got. Well, this is how they beat Ohio State last year running the ball. I think that's their formula currently with the team they have right now. But I, I'm not saying running the ball to like uh, control clock or anything. I'm saying they were 
like efficient yeah. and effective in getting like 60 yard runs last year. And that's what they did against Ohio state. And I think that that worked out well for them in this game. And to the, the rivalry Penn state point, I just hope that going forward, the college football playoff committee, AP, whatever, just stop ranking Penn state this high. We know it's going to happen every year. Uh, this year is not different. They're going to lose to Ohio state in week seven and then to Michigan again in week 10. But then there's a game that you actually highlighted here on the notes that you said actually watched a lot of this game. So go ahead and talk about the players that stood out to you from Utah versus Washington. So I was I was at a mountain house uh, over the weekend uh, with my girlfriend's family, and it was nice because I spent most of Saturday watching football. So I, I caught a bunch of the Michigan Penn State, and then I did also watch the Utah Washington game, and it was it was very interesting to see slow start by Washington. They were getting stifled by uh, some of Utah's defensive concepts. They were able to kind of blitz, uh, get a lot of pressure on Penix early on into the game, but then he started heating up, man, and. I know this is one of your big guys. Um, I'm still, I'm still on the fence about this guy. I know this is one of a lot of analysts' like favorite wide receivers in this next coming draft class at Dunze. Um, but I was just impressed by just how the offense had so many answers in the second quarter. Uh, they rallied back. It was, it was what 20, 24, 28 at halftime or something like that. And then afterwards, it was all Washington. So it was just a, a really cool performance to see. I think Washington is one of the better teams in the country. And it would be a lot of fun, I think, if they ended up making the college football playoffs. That's It's a team that I feel like could, could spice some things up. I don't think um, Michigan is too is Michigan is so, so good that it will be a, a matchup like an Alabama Notre Dame that we've seen in past years where it's just, it's not competitive. Uh, Alabama, Washington, a couple years ago, how that wasn't competitive. Like I, yeah. I think like, it'll be a lot more like this team has a lot more oomph um, in that conversation, the way they play. I think defensively, I'm a little worried about kind of how they can stop teams, but this offense is legit. Yeah. This is the best offense in college football to me. I think that's pretty clear. The way Penix is able to operate, a lot of uh, draft analysts kind of dog him. They don't see as like the the best uh, arm strength and stuff like that, and that he's insulated. But I think he actually operates the system pretty well. And he, granted, he does have outstanding receivers in uh, Adunze, Polk, and McMillan. And there's a guy who's like uh, Jermaine Barton or something. A guy I hadn't even. Uh, no like heard of or anything i think he's a freshman he was cooking that game too but they have a ton of weapons there uh the running back's really good dylan johnson their defense is pretty it's okay it's good for like uh pac-12 standard but not for like sec or big 10 standard but this is a very good team and it's a team that hopefully gets into that playoff like you're saying i think they would give teams like michigan like uh i, I would assume texas gets in I think they would give those teams run for their money or the winner of Georgia, Alabama, I would assume would also be the fourth team. Um, hopefully Ohio they State's get it. undefeated still. So we'll, we'll see if it's Ohio state, Michigan, uh, when it comes down to it. The problem with, uh, the big 10 is that the winner of that game, like AKA the game, Michigan, Ohio state, they don't play each other again in the championship, the big 10 championship. Yep. So it would be very hard for, It'd be the winner of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. That's that's all I want to say is that like Ohio State is still in the mix. I think Michigan is the favorite there, but it's it's still one of those things that that yeah. This is going to be an interesting uh, play. Kind of on it. We're going on a tangent here, but this is going to be an interesting college football playoff selection because you have a team that like Michigan, who I believe is going to be undefeated. Then you have uh, Florida State, who I believe is going to be undefeated because the ACC is just terrible. And then you have Texas, who has beaten Alabama. 
you have Alabama and Georgia that are going to meet in uh, Atlanta in the SEC championship. I would assume that the winner of that gets in. And then you have the who's going to be the Pac-12 champion between Washington and Oregon. I think it's going to be a rematch um, in the Pac-12 if both teams went out. So it's going to be an interesting selection for them this year. I wonder who's going to be the one that's left out. If everything holds, even if Alabama beats Georgia, I think they would be the one left out because Texas has the head-to-head against them. Unless Oregon wins the Pac-12, then I think Alabama would get in. Yeah, no, it'll it'll be interesting. Like you said, there's there's a lot of different scenarios, uh, situations that could shape shape up, shake up. Um, can't can't speak at the moment. Um, but we're we're wrapping up the podcast. This is the final section, as we always conclude with our perfect takes of the week. Uh, mine's gonna be for this Thursday night. The Baltimore Ravens haven't had back to back losses this year. Uh, the three losses they've had, they dominated really all three quarters up until kind of the last little bit where the the other team clawed back. If you look at the Colts game, the Steelers, and then the Browns this past week. And I think they want to get that out of their mouth, uh, that taste, that bad, bad loss. And they're going to be in front of the home fans on a short week against the defense that has been putrid for the most part, I, I know they've clawed out a couple wins. They've looked impressive versus the 49ers offensively and then the Bills. But I don't think they're going to get a lot of production against Mike McDonald, especially if T. Higgins is still banged up. I know Jamar Chase is still dealing with a nagging injury. And it's one of those things that I feel like this is going to shape up to be a dominant win and performance from the Baltimore Ravens unit. You're taking a page out of my book and going with the Thursday game there for the take. I like it. I think the Ravens will pull out the victory as well. Uh, Like you said, every game that they've lost, they've ended up leading in the fourth quarter, I believe. Or like at least going into the fourth quarter. Substantially. Like the win probability has been insane. And it goes back to last year too. Like this is a team that even when they lose, like they dominate games, uh, game in and game out. Like it's just, it's insane. Yeah. And this is kind of a, a grudge match. Uh, of sorts this was the team that beat the this was the regular season right where Hubbard had like the 98 yard sack return or was that in the playoffs last year I think it was the, the regular no it was the playoffs that was, it was the, the playoffs game yeah because they okay, were on the goal okay. line and they were going to beat them they, they got absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, dismantled week 18 uh prior oh to yeah you're right you're weekend. right you're right yeah yeah, yeah. so the, the, these are two teams obviously they're division rivals that have a little bit of bl- bad blood recently uh, and the Ravens also have bad blood with one of the teams I'm going to talk about, which are the Tennessee Titans. But I think Trevor Lawrence has disappointed uh, a bit from a statistical standpoint this season. The numbers aren't where we want them to be. But I think he and the Jacksonville Jaguars will get back on track as they host the Tennessee Titans. I think they're going to blow the Titans out of the water. Well, Levis's uh, Cinderella run and his first start has not followed up in his next two starts. And I think that the Jacksonville Jaguars defense, which has been feisty this year, is going to take advantage of that. And I think this is a good game for the Jags to get right against their division rival, Tennessee Titans. I mean, Will Levis um, has not has not looked like the um, star quarterback or this. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like they, a lot of expectations were set after that Falcons game because uh, he was just throwing the bombs. His success rate that game was really low. His performance the past couple weeks, uh, the Steelers uh, a couple weeks ago on a short week, he didn't look great. Uh, last week in Tampa Bay, he didn't look 
great. And it's one of those things that he's still kind of struggling with that. He has a bad offensive line. His wide receivers can't separate. So it's not you can pass judgment on this guy. But it's one of those things that this, like exactly like you said, the Jaguars defense is feisty. I think they're going to force him into a lot of mistakes. And that's going to give Trevor Lawrence and company uh, – a lot of opportunities and they need to bounce back. This is a game that you need to have. Um, Mike Vrabel's unit can be sometimes feisty. You don't want this to be a grudge match. You want to, you want to make a statement um, because the next slate isn't going to be easy. Like we're, we're talking about Houston, Cincinnati, Baltimore, and then Cleveland uh, all in that mix over the next like four or five weeks. And it's so one of those things like you need to get right this week. And I agree with you. I think this is a good take. Um, I expect it to happen as well. So with that, we are we are wrapped up. We are approaching, I believe, episode 20. This is episode 19. Uh, pretty crazy that we've gotten this far. We we consistently stay over an hour. We'll, we'll try to work on that. But we appreciate you guys for listening and we'll catch you next week.